talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Did you see that small plane land on the 407 yesterday afternoon? Good thing the toll rates are so high that no one drives on the 407. And there is plenty of room to land a plane. Here's Scott Thompson! Sounds like he's got a cold, right? That's why we put him in his closet. He's got to stay there 14 days. Yeah, it's like, how'd you get a cold? What do you mean you got a cold? You got Because you're not wearing your mask. See, you know, the mask stuff, a little less about that. They said that. Remember last year that, uh, well, the flu season's going to be bad. Well, it turned out not to be because we were so protocoled up with COVID-19. Now, a little less masking. They say they're going to see a return of the flu and the typical stuff that we get uh, every September when the kids with wet hands go back to school. I digress. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. Uh, I'm Scott Thompson. Will on the board. Ted and Diana in the newsroom, along with Lisa, who Lisa Pileski, who picked the song today. I have a feeling that Diana's upset with me because uh, we were going to let Diana pick today. It's like, Diana, no, I'm not picking it. Uh, and because yesterday she had picked purple, uh, people eater and, and, and the judges voted no. So, uh, I, I hope Diana is not offended and, and we promise tomorrow for Halloween we're gonna, we're gonna unload the purple people eater. Well, uh, I am feeling a little tender from yesterday. Oh, Diana, I'm so sorry. It was but actually, tomorrow, you know what? I think I'll be okay. You know what? Uh, I'll be very honest. It was Will that made the call. Hey! <laughs> all right, I tried passing the buck. I'll be fine. Uh, we're going to have all purple people eater all day tomorrow. You just wait. <laughs> I, I understand that Will has Yay. found the Will has found the extended dance mix of it. So we're going to be playing that tomorrow. So you hang on. You and Ted will be doing uh, whatever through the newsroom. <laughs> Uh, as you know, uh, we were talking about this yesterday, and I'm literally on the air with you, and I'm watching out the corner of my eye on a screen of a plane landing on the 407. And we had heard the story earlier, uh, but then eventually got to see uh, by mid-late afternoon the, the actual footage, and it was just absolutely incredible. Uh, to see incredible uh, that absolutely no one was injured in any way uh, in this uh, and, and uh, the remarkable flying from the pilot to uh, to do what he did and get the plane down safely. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Keith Mackey, owner of Mackey International a, and Aviation, an expert in the field and is with us now. Keith, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Well, hi, Scott. Glad to talk to you again. So I'm sure you've seen the video of this, Keith. What were your thoughts when uh, when you saw this video? Uh, when I was first noticing it, uh, obviously the camera is down where the plane actually comes to a rest. But if you look further up into the uh, into the image, you actually see the pilot uh, maneuvering over a bridge and then coming down under uh, a signage uh, stand and such, which I-, I thought was just remarkable. What, what were your thoughts when you saw this video? He did that, but not only that, he also put it between the fast lane, the left lane, and the dividing median. And he almost got the whole plane in there. He had the left wing overlapping that concrete barrier, and it only cleared it by a few inches. He just did an amazing job. So, uh, obviously, as we said, uh, miraculously, nobody was hurt. Everybody uh, gets out safely. Any, uh, we haven't heard officially what has happened. Obviously, there's an investigation going on. Uh, any idea what this p- uh, pilot must have been experiencing? Well, the airplane had just had a 100-hour inspection, and he was flying out of the Buttonville Airport. And anybody that's flown out of Buttonville knows that it's really almost in a downtown environment. There are very few areas to make emergency landings there. And uh, he was only about two kilometers from the end of runway 15. I assume he departed that runway uh, when he touched down. So he didn't have much altitude or many options. Apparently, he lost power, tried to switch fuel tanks. That didn't solve the problem. So he resolved himself to what he had to do, put it in the limited space he had available in a perfect position where he didn't uh, really even disrupt traffic hardly. 
Uh, it's fascinating. We've talked about this before, and obviously the higher up you are, the more time that you have. But at what point does a pilot recognize we can't go up, we've got to come down, and I've got to look for other options? Well, the big problem that we have training pilots is teaching them not to try to make a 180-degree turn and land on the runway that they just took off from. Mm. Most of the time, they don't make it because they don't have enough altitude. In an airplane like this, to do it safely, he probably needs 1,000 to 1,200 feet of altitude. So landing back at the airport, back at Buttonville, was not an option for him. He had to do something with a very minimal amount of turn, 90 degrees perhaps one way or the other, and he did that. Luckily, the 407 was there, and luckily the 407 is a toll road. Consequently, there's not quite as many cars on it as there might be on another highway. How fast would he have been coming down? Because like you said, it was almost like he merged right into traffic. Well, he would probably select a speed that was comparable with the road traffic. Uh, 60, 70 miles an hour in that airplane would be a perfectly safe uh, maneuvering speed for landing and would blend right in with the traffic. How hard is it to land a plane, uh, and again, we don't know the situation in, in whether he was under power or just gliding completely, but how difficult is it to land something when it has no power? Well, most landings are made power off anyway. I mean, you close the throttle and you don't depend on the engine to get you to the runway. That's the way right. we train pilots. Uh, they learn to turn from a point uh, on what we call the downwind or paralleling the landing runway and then make uh, two 90-degree turns to line up with the runway. And if the pilot does it carefully and closes his throttle at the right point, he can make it from that point on the downwind to the ground without having to have additional power. Usually he's about 800 feet when he's a beam the landing point. So the airplane does glide very well. So would one be would the pilots afterwards, other than being obviously incredibly startled, would they be surprised at how easy the landing was? Obviously, taking away the obstacles of traffic and road signs and such, but uh, it would be it would be a relatively soft landing, bringing one of these down under power or without power. It probably was, but really, he had his hands full. Yeah, uh, the street uh, just east of the airport. I think it's McCombie or something like that, has an overpass on the 407. So we had to turn past the overpass, get underneath those traffic signs that you mentioned, and then there was another bridge where that uh, security camera was placed, and he had yeah. to be on the ground before he got to that bridge. Yeah. So he really had his plate full. He had a lot of things to uh, compensate in that landing, and he did, a, of course, a great job. And obviously, it was not a limitless runway. As you said, there's other obstacles farther down the road. Uh, obviously, pilots go through a checklist before they leave the ground and such. Uh, is there Would there have been any indication? Obviously, there wasn't because he wouldn't have taken off if there was. Uh, but is this just one of those things where you hammer the throttle and you get up there and you hope for the best and, and, and it obviously started to cut out? I guess, well, is there any indication? Yeah, sorry, and go ahead. When you've had maintenance, you're, you're kind of careful about uh, what might be developing that was the result of the maintenance. So you use a little more care, perhaps, than you would on a, a routine flight that's just been uh, when the airplane has just flown. So I'm sure he was being careful, and no doubt he had some indication that he was losing power. He tried to compensate for it by switching fuel tanks in case that were the issue, which is exactly the proper thing to do, mm-hmm. and then resolved himself to the fact that he had to put it on the ground, and it's time then to concentrate on managing your energy, getting it on the ground and getting it stopped, and not trying to restart the engine. And any idea how long that would have been from the time he experienced trouble till he actually did touch down? Well, he was about two kilometers from the end of the runway, so he did not have very long at all. Uh, that's a, the longest runway of Buttonville, the one he probably used. So he uh, probably only had seven, perhaps 800 feet of altitude at the most when he realized that he had to put it on the ground. Unbelievable. So he didn't have a whole lot to play with. 
Yeah, and split-second decisions, obviously. Keith Mackey with us, owner of Mackey International and Aviation, an expert in aviation, talking about uh, the plane out of Buttonville that landed on the 407 yesterday. Keith, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. You too. Uh, the great thing about um, the pandemic, if there are great things, maybe that's too strong a word, great. <laughs> uh, one of the interesting things is people have uh, reconnected with things that are really important. For example, pets. And lots of, of, of people looking for pets over the course of this pandemic. Uh, and, and things have been pretty good at the SPCAs because of that, as uh, they find good homes for um, good pets and, and, and all that sort of thing that they do uh, all the time. Uh, obviously a bit more demand now. But as we get closer to Halloween, uh, the topic of black cats came up. And um, apparently they're not necessarily the first ones to go. If you know what I mean, is that true? Is there a stigma around the black cat? Let's bring in Heather Ashcroft, adoption coordinator, Hamilton Burlington SPCA, and is with us now. Heather, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Me too. So what's life like at uh, the Hamilton Burlington SPCA right now, and what's it been like for you during the pandemic? Uh, right now, life at the shelter is is very busy. Um, you may have recently read uh, the Hamilton Spectator article pertaining to a large number of dogs that we're currently caring for and looking for yeah. homes for. Um, things throughout the pandemic have been uh, have been good for adoptions from the perspective that we are really successful with our no contact adoption process. It really allows us to match the pets to the prospective adopters, and our return rates have uh, have decreased since the pandemic. If believe it or not. That was going to be my next question because, you know, obviously we've heard demand go up during the pandemic, but you hear these sort of things, you know, around the holidays and such, and then people realize, man, there's a bit more to it than than what they thought. But perhaps the pandemic has allowed them that time to investigate and, 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 and really make this work. Definitely. And I think that our process specifically speaks to uh, being able to prepare adopters for exactly what to expect and what life is going to be like so that they don't get any surprises later on. Give us a little example there for, you know, uh, to help those that may be thinking about this. What are some of the things that you should put out on the table right away? Absolutely. So one of the ways that we get animals coming into the shelter is through our uh, TNR colony caregivers. So TNR is trap, neuter, return. Uh, feral street cats, cats that may be dumped that aren't socialized, they end up, you know, breeding and uh, having kittens. So we have colony caregivers who look out for these cats and we work very closely with them to be able to afford them uh, affordable vet care for these feral cats. Now, these feral cats are not adoptable into typical homes. They have been used to living outside. They don't want to interact with people. They're much happier to do their thing. So we want to make sure they're spayed and neutered, vaccinated and, and taken care of in other aspects. But while we're working with the colony caregivers, there's kittens that are born. So we work with them to bring the animals into the shelter. And now these kittens have not been exposed to humans. So they think that we're quite scary. So one of the things that we do in our adoption process, specifically for these kittens, is really guide adopters on how you can socialize these kittens and take this hissy little spitty eight-week-old adorable fluff ball (laughs) and turn them into a typical, loving, affectionate house cat. So what's the dealio with black cats? I mean, are they the last ones to go? They typically are. Now, I will say there are some people that know that there is a black cat bias, and they do go out of their way to look to adopt black cats when they are looking to acquire pets. However, uh, the grand scheme of things, when we look at adoption rates, black cats definitely stay in shelters much longer than cats that are other colors. And is this just the stigma around a black cat represents bad luck? I think that that is a huge factor. I do think so. But I think that there are other factors that affect black cat adoptions. I think that people look at the face of a black cat and maybe look at a different cat that's a different color, and they don't find that connection as easily because there isn't the Mm. differentiation between the features. They feel like they maybe can't tell what the cat is thinking. That would make sense because, yeah, that would make sense. And and I even heard with older people that sometimes they can't even see them. So, like, they can get underfoot and so on and so yeah. forth, whereas a fair-haired cat, you, you don't have that situation as much. Yeah, yeah, they definitely have a increased visibility. And I, I have had that uh, concern brought to me, too, when discussing adoption of black cats. Now, that being said, with the COVID-19 pandemic and such, has has there been an issue with black cats? Because people just want to adopt a pet and willing to, to look beyond their superstition or what have you. <laughs> 
We've been very lucky. Even the black cats that do stay in shelter a little bit longer than the others, uh, we don't have any issues finding them really loving, fabulous homes. We've been very lucky. We have the most wonderful supporters. How do you know if you're ready to adopt a pet? I think doing research, uh, looking at kind of what the typical responsibilities are, the day-to-day responsibilities, how it might affect your daily schedule, and then also looking at things that might pop up that are unexpected, um, you know, illnesses, looking at the financial aspect as well, making sure that you have vet care lined up, and then even thinking about things like maybe when we're allowed to travel, um, what would you do with your pet? Do you have someone that would be able to watch your pet? All of these things are things to think about before acquiring a pet. All right, Heather, Halloween this weekend, uh, pets and Halloween and candy and all that stuff. Please, please, please keep chocolate away from your dogs. They will get into it. They love it. It tastes great. Obviously, we know this, but it can make them quite sick. And if your dog does get into your Halloween candy, please do not hesitate. Contact your local emergency clinic. All right, Heather Ashcroft with us, Adoption Coordinator for Hamilton Burlington SPCA, talking about all things pet, including getting yours ready for Halloween. Heather, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thank you. As I mentioned, uh, Facebook undergoing a name change, and and this all being announced today uh, with Zuckerberg at the big uh, brouhaha with uh, all the big cronies and such. Uh, Here's what ABC had to say and give you an update on what's going on here. You're going to really feel like you're there with other people. Well, unveiling his vision of the future, living in a metaverse, a virtual world where glasses and holograms put experiences and people all around us instead of on a screen, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg announcing his company will no longer be called Facebook. Instead, the company's new name is Meta. It is time for us to adopt a new company brand. The social media platform Facebook will remain the same, but Meta will encompass everything the company owns and is working on, like how Google became Alphabet. Alex Stone, ABC News. So why are we to think that business uh, at Meta is any different than business at Facebook? So why are we to think that this new company is any more ethically sound than the old? Why are we to think that just by blinking our eyes and changing a name that somehow we have a different environment here? Are, are all those old, uh, like, is, is it just Zuckerberg making his way over and all the employees of Facebook, they don't get to, to jump into the metaverse? Is that what it is? Yeah, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Why would this company be any different when it's the same... Uh, sort of person running it. Here's what Zuckerberg had to say when explaining it all. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. Our mission remains the same. It's still about bringing people together. Our apps and their brands, they're not changing either. And we are still the company that designs technology around people. Now we have a new North Star to help bring the metaverse to life. I don't know if I want to look to Mr. Zuckerberg for a North Star, if you know what I mean. I want to bring in uh, bring in Ian Lee, talk about a couple of things, the Bank of uh, Canada rate uh, and the interest, uh, Bank of Canada and the interest rates. Also, I want to talk about Facebook changing its name. Ian Lee, uh, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University with us now. Thank you, Ian. Hope you're well. Doing very well. Thanks, uh, Scott. All right, Bank of Canada keeping the rates where they are this week, however, saying that things are going to go up. Uh, years and years of traditionally, historically low uh, interest rates. Many asked when it would change. Some said it would take a life event to do it. Is this it? Was this bound to happen? Are they on their way back up? Yes, I believe they are. Um, and and just unpack that very quickly. Um, I, I don't want anyone to think that I'm suggesting that the Trudeau government caused inflation. They did not. Um the pandemic uh, emerged. We know that. We did the lockdowns, and then there were all kinds of unintended consequences. I'm not blaming anybody. Uh, one of the biggest unintended consequences was that it just blew up our supply chains everywhere, and that created shortages. And we have known for, oh, 2,000 years, back to the ancient Roman times, that when you have a shortage of something, I don't care what it is, carrots, computer chips and automobiles, Silver, gold, oil, Mm. if you have a shortage, the price goes up. And that's what we're experiencing. My criticism, and, and, and I don't mean this in any partisan way, I'm not a partisan, I don't belong to any political party, but was with the response. 
Yes, of course, we had to help people. Absolutely, no doubt about it. But I argue, and the data shows, that we helped, uh, as a percentage of GDP, way more than all the other G- wealthy G7 countries. And the Globe and Mail showed that we were giving out all kinds of money to companies that were making, were very, very profitable. In other words, what I'm trying to say is we overdid it. Instead of targeting using uh, Canada Revenue Agency data, which is excellent, by the way, because everybody files a tax return, 30 million of us, by the way. So they know exactly how much we made last year, and they could have very easily have used that data. They didn't. They sent too much money out into the economy. The savings rate went through the roof, as you know. And what ended up was there was too much money chasing too few goods. And I've just given you, the, I think, the best yeah. non-technical explanation of inflation. Too much money chasing too few goods. Now, chickens coming home to roost. The inflation's going up much more than the central bank thought it would do, and much more, I think, than Christian Freeland, the finance minister, thought. And in the last literally seven days, this government has done an about-face. Nothing to do with the election. I'm not suggesting that. Up until only a week ago, Christy Freeland was talking very clearly like she was going to extend this um, um, Stimul- massive stimulus or massive income support to businesses and consumers, uh, workers, uh, indefinitely into the future, or at least well and uh, going forward. And then all of a sudden, on a dime, she turned and said, no, 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 we're going to target it now, much more reduced targeted. And the Bank of Canada was saying, oh, look, you know, we're not going to put rates up until a year from now, end of 2022. And then he went to the press conference yesterday, and all of a sudden <laughs> he's ended quantitative easing which, by the way, is the fancy technical term for printing money. They've stopped it. Just boom, stopped it. And they're pulling forward the forecast for interest rate increases. So what happened that caused both the Minister of Finance and the central bank governor to literally, I think, go 180 degrees in the other direction, like on a dime? I think they saw the numbers, and I think they're advisors, and there's some highly educated, highly trained, experienced people, a lot of them, in Finance Canada and in the Bank of Canada, over 800 professionals in the Bank of Canada, really smart people, and they're looking at the data, and they started looking at the bond markets. The bond markets are saying, look, we're not going to buy your long-term bonds, not because Canada's bad credit, but because they think interest rates are going up because they think inflation's going up. So all the tea leaves, all the signals were flashing red, and mm. I think that they realized that this was going to hurt them if they continued down that road. So they said, look, we got to pull in all this stimulus, and they were printing money, which is injecting money into the economy, make creating more, too many more dollars, chasing too few goods. In other words, exacerbating inflation. Likewise, on the income support side, and they realized that they were making the problem worse. They were not causing the problem. They were making it worse. And so that's why hmm. they did their about-face. And, but nonetheless, it's widely believed that rates are going to go up much sooner some are even saying in January, by the way. Some uh, pundits, some economists are saying January. The governor himself is saying the second uh, quarter, possibly the second quarter, April, May. But this is a quibble, January versus April. Rates sure. are going up next year, everybody. All right. Want to talk about Facebook? I've had this explained to me that uh, because why would you have a Facebook, a brand like that was so so strong and change a name? Obviously, uh, people aren't thinking too highly of it right now, but there's also a uh, a lot of uh, umbrella companies underneath the Facebook name. If we change the name and call it Meta or whatever, move all those companies over there and Facebook rots on the vine. Nobody knows any different. Uh, Is this going to work? I don't believe so. Uh, full disclosure, I don't have any investments of any kind. I do have a Facebook account, but I call it a tombstone um, address. All I have is my name and my title and my university. That's it. I don't post to Facebook whatsoever. Um, but um, So I don't have any dog in this hunt. Okay, But what I'm arguing, Scott, is this. There are some deep-rooted problems in Facebook. They are on the record. A very senior executive testified for hours and hours and hours uh, before the Congress and released a treasure trove of internal documentation. There is a wide agreement, liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats, this isn't a partisan thing, that there is a lot of rot inside Facebook. And so what they're doing is saying, you know, well, let's just change the name. There's a wonderful slang phrase, I know you've heard it in the English language, if you put lipstick on a pig, <laughs> yeah. still a pig. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to say using colorful language is if Facebook doesn't address 
the underlying problems in Facebook. Changing the name is not going to solve the problem, and that's where I think they are right now. Uh, what about creating a whole new universe? It's not the same thing with a different name. It's a whole new shiny toy over here. You don't need well, Facebook. Look what we have here. Uh, the, 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 you know, this is fascinating what you're talking about. This is exactly what I've been teaching for 30 years, this idea of it's in the technical jargon. It's called diversification. So you're in a business that's not doing well called cigarettes uh, because it's a declining industry, as we all know. So what do you want to do? Well, you want to diversify away from that industry and go into another industry that you think is going to be much more successful. It's a growth industry. You'll make money. And that is a much more high-risk strategy, but uh, it actually has more promise, and I'm not passing judgment on the you know the future growth of that industry but at least if you went into that industry you're going to a new industry where you're not carrying your baggage because it's a completely different business model in that industry it's not the model of of facebook and so it's a very high risk but at least you don't have to uh, address or solve your old problems because you're leaving them behind but if you are exiting the old industry uh, we will talk again on this, that's for sure. Ian, Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, always fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine here on the board. Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks in the newsroom, and now gathering around the big round table to talk about the issues of the day. Thanks to you all for uh, being here. Much appreciated. How come you always play good songs going into this? I wanted to hear Jimi Hendrix as opposed to you, with all due respect. Well, because we're a talk station, not a music station. Okay, okay, all right. I just thought I'd throw <laughs> I mean, I started singing along, and, you know. You know what's coming up tomorrow uh, at uh, 3.35, Raw Fish, is another issue of Countdown to Ted. Yes. You might want to tune in for that. It'll be very exciting. Ah. Now, how do you feel? All right. Uh, <laughs> I'll go one a... better than that. I got to uh, no, no. no. Okay, go ahead. No, no, I just. I'm want... rolling up my sleeves, Ted. Let's go. <laughs> All right, I want to start with the poll question of the day, and it's obviously a very serious matter. Uh, this is nothing new in sports and NHL and society. Uh, we certainly know the story, as he has so courageously come out, Kyle Beach uh, of the Chicago Blackhawks, former, and, and, and talking about his story. And the, the question, will this sexual assault investigation lead to changes uh, in the NHL? 70% are saying no. Ted, what are your thoughts? Nope, not a chance, and I'll tell you why. Because the hockey culture hasn't changed. We've heard the stories of... Uh, Sheldon Kennedy and Theo Fleury and now Kyle Beach and that horrendous thing in St. Michael's uh, uh, University School in Toronto, which which that had nothing to do with hazing. I was saying in the newsroom, you know, having a kid, having a rookie carry your pads after practice, that's one thing. Okay, you know, buying buying donuts. Okay, but this kind of stuff, no. So nothing is going to change because the hockey culture will remain the same, and that's unfortunate. I don't like saying that. This happened in 2010. What's happened since 2010 that nobody knows about? Uh, interesting, because as you're saying that and describing it, it almost sounds like the same discussions we're having within the military. Diana, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with Ted. I mean, I hope that things will get better and that the culture will change. Um, but again, I mean, it's just shrouded in such secrecy and it's just such, you know, there's such a dark side of it all. And I think people really need to realize that, you know, it probably happens a lot more than we think, um, obviously, because many victims don't feel comfortable about go- coming out about it. Uh, and it's just... It's it's just awful. And I, I mean, I hope it changes, but it's just hearing about it. It's like, well, we're still talking about this and it's 2021. And many wonder how this can happen in this world. Um, but but this is, you know, this is about power. This is about fear. This is about uh, intimidation. Uh, and even professional athletes can uh, succumb to this. Uh, how do you describe that? Anyone? Well, I'll, what I'll say is this. When Kyle Beach was quoted in an interview as saying when he went to the team doctor to report what happened, the team doctor basically said, you put yourself in your own situation. You're to blame. How do wow. you 
fight yeah. something yeah. like that. But is it professional sports in general as well? Because we're hearing all this about, you know, the U.S. gymnastics team and the and that, you know, I watched that documentary on those those women yeah. in the U.S. Larry gym- Nasser, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's just the same thing. They went to their coaches, they went to the, you know, their, the sports doctors and, and no one seemed to believe these, these young women and it's just awful. Because there's too much money involved that if a yep. school has a chance to win a championship, once again, here's a name that I just saw on Twitter a couple of minutes ago who uh, all kinds of controversy several years ago when he was a head coach at Baylor and the Tiger Cats uh, really thought about bringing him as a coach. Art Bryles, his name has now been booted around as a replacement coach. The coach at Texas Tech was fired. And as somebody said, when all the boosters throw all this money, uh, it kind of changes things. So they think that Art Bryles can turn the program around, uh, whatever people think about that, uh, you know, the perception, public perception be damned. Yeah. And, you know, the whole thing about this person is dangling the carrot of a pro of a professional athletic career for you. And no one is ever going to believe you. And if you mention any of this, you're done. Um, And then you put up with the abuse. You can't imagine what this guy's life would have been like for the last 10 years. And when he was told about the 16 year old, what he would have said uh, to the 16 year old who who uh, has brought up the same sort of allegations. You know, the poor man just cried thinking he could have stopped that. So think of the burden this person is. And and many like this uh, male or female who are carrying this burden on their shoulders and will continue to carry it probably for quite some time. All right, let's talk about Facebook. Uh, we've certainly talked about that around the table uh, and and uh, the, I guess, uh, ideology that is Facebook. Now uh, there's something better, something more shiny called uh, Meta, and it's a whole another different universe. Uh, and we all hear from business uh, professionals what this is about is let's take all of, uh, change the name of the parent company, take all of the holdings, move it over there, and let Facebook uh, rot on the vine. Here's a clip from Zuckerberg honestly saying that it's pretty much the same company. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. Our mission remains the same, it's still about bringing people together. Our apps and their brands, they're not changing either. And we are still the company that designs technology around people. Now we have a new North Star to help bring the the Metaverse to life. He's a North Star. Oh my God! Where's my sunglasses? By the way, that uh, why are we why are we to believe that this new company will be run any different than the last? Well, first of all, that Bronx cheered up. That was me because the the name change. First of all, they don't know how difficult it's going to be to have first people uh, get used to changing the name because when you tell them it's not Facebook, they're going to look at you like you've got three heads. What are you talking? No, but about? they're talking about the company. I don't think the Facebook app name is changing, uh, right? Okay. Like I don't yeah, think all, that's fa- changing. Facebook, Facebook is the parent company of all of this. Whether it's WhatsApp, whether it's Instagram, right. whatever. And now they're uh, Meta. And they're being they're being associated with Facebook, and they're a success. So they're trying to move that away, and then Meta will take over the success that Facebook initially had, and Facebook will be just become old and die out, and everybody will think that Meta's the best. It's a shell game. Yeah. yeah, you know yeah. that's nothing's yeah. going to change. Not, like people are not going to know what this is. You know, he's 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 obviously felt the heat, rightfully so, of what he did or didn't do, and now he's decided to you know let's let's make an optical change here. Nobody will notice. Well, can, can I? Well, you want to weigh in yeah, on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I want to weigh in because I li- I love in his announcement. It's all about their their augmented reality, and they're going to have holograms and glasses that project your friends <laughs> in front of you, and only you can see them. And all this, you know, great Philip. K. Dick, Twilight Zone, uh, detrimental stuff that we've seen only in movies like The Matrix and Terminator or whatever. And I'm just thinking, is he next going to announce that he's building a park filled with dinosaurs? Like, have we not been warned of how bad an idea it is when you give Zuckerberg stuff like this? Yeah, I don't think people have the trust for the new world in him. Uh, yeah, Facebook gets a new name. What about if Facebook got a new face? Would people look at that differently? A Facebook lift? very good will no i mean what if zuckerberg stepped down i I think people hate him as much as they do the name 
Ah, oh boy. Oh, that, now, now that gets in a bit. I, I just wish he changed his hair, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everybody talks maybe about. blink. Everybody, yeah, everybody, yeah. Every talk, everybody talks about the owner of the Las Vegas uh, Raiders, uh, Mark Davis, with the hair that he has. Zuckerberg's similar. So, you know what? Change the way you look. Change your perception. I don't know. He looks so, so smarmy the way he looks now. Seriously, though, it's kind of almost the same discussion we were just having about culture. If they got rid of Zuckerberg and brought someone else in, would we actually expect anything different? Well, we have him from a name, so good point. 445, thank you, table. The Conservative Caucus is united. I put forward a plan, and we support that plan, which is returning to a normal parliament and making sure that MPs and senators that come to debate the issues of the day in parliament are vaccinated. Uh, that is Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole talking about uh, vaccination and everybody getting back into the House to do some work and what is required to do so. It is 4.51. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will on the board. Uh, Ted and Diana in the newsroom. Let's talk politics and bring in Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies, and with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Not a problem, Scott. Thanks for making the time for me. It seems we live in a world of extremes now. Uh, many Canadians are looking for other options that just aren't there. Um, uh, you know, we just finished an election and ended up with pretty much the same thing that we already have. The Conservatives couldn't mount uh, a really strong campaign to, to move the needle in any way and now caught up in the whole vaccination thing again. H- how come it seems the Conservatives are taking one step forward and two or three back? It's like deja vu. It's like where we were three, four months ago, like you said. I honestly don't know why. Um, It shouldn't be a tough conversation to have. If you look at public opinion, most Canadians, even most conservatives agree that vaccinations are a good thing. Vaccinations are how we get out of this pandemic. Even the leader of the Conservative Party agrees upon that. But for some reason, he's having a hard time convincing his caucus to do so. And honestly, it's a little bit unacceptable, if you ask me, because at the end of the day, politicians, they should be good role models. And right now, some politicians aren't being good role models. And it's a shame, to be honest. You know, it reminds me of talking to a restaurateur when we were having the big debate over vaccine passports and what have you. And I remember saying to the, to the uh, and this person was against all of that. And I said, well, wouldn't you want to, uh, isn't there a better chance of getting more customers if you cater to the 85% or the 90% than you do to the 10 or 15%? And it seems like the same thing here. Why are we letting the fringe dictate for everyone? Because there must be a political calculation out there that that fringe is helping conservatives to get elected, helping them fundraise or whatnot. But that shouldn't be the excuse. The conservative party should take a lead, even out of Doug Ford's playbook, where we don't say that much that we need to follow Doug Ford. But in this case, he expelled members from his caucus for not getting vaccinated. At the end of the day, as a leader of a political party, a major one in Canada, you need to do the right thing. And Mr. O'Toole should do the right thing and require all of his MPs to get vaccinated or provide a medical note saying why they can't get vaccinated. And being vaccinated should not be a, a, an issue that's a shame for people. People should feel excited to get it. Get it. But in some cases, it seems like some conservative MPs are trying to hide behind this weird argument about privacy. But no, at the end of the day, we should be happy that we're getting vaccinated because that's how we're going to exit this pandemic. So it's time for conservatives and all politicians to step up and do the right thing and get vaccinated. You bring up Doug Ford, and I think it's hilarious because nobody wanted to touch this person with a 10-meter pole uh, during any election at any given time. And now he is doing just a, a fine job of walking right down the center of all of this. Many have said we're listening to liberal, a liberal, not a conservative. So, you know, uh, Doug Ford's managing the biggest province in the country. Why isn't Aaron O'Toole paying attention? I think that's a very good question, too to think about uh yeah you're right during the campaign doug ford was not someone you wanted to be seen with he went underground for a very good reason but now he's showing leadership characteristics that we need to see more politicians and to be honest with you conservative leaders across this province should be taking a note out of his page because ontario is doing a very good job especially compared to other provinces we're taking in COVID patients to help support uh provinces like saskatchewan we're looking to exit this pandemic we have a goal and plan eventually but the rest of the provinces and even at the federal level don't seem to have the same level of level of dedication and that level of uh knowledge to what we need to get done so maybe we should all be a little bit more like doug ford and think towards the future and not just try to beat each other over the head score some partisan points
So O'Toole fall, falling into the vaccination trap, being looked to appear more to the right. Uh, yet we have an article in the National Post today from John Iveson talking about liberals, uh, blue liberals in the party are absolutely uh, uh, upset, we'll say, about how that party is veering so far to the left. They're calling them the new NDP. Uh, again, is, the, is there not... Is there not solitude? Is there not a win in the center here? Why are the conservatives going so far to the right? Although many would say that O'Toole brought them right back to the center. But even why are the liberals going so far to the left? They don't even need to do that. So, again, it seems we're becoming a divisive country and no one's coming together to unite and, and, and come up with, uh, you know, some sort of common solution. And that's been since day one, Mr. Trudeau has been trying to push a progressive agenda and really push Canada forward. And that's something he views, and especially as he looks to possibly retire, he's looking to make his mark on Canada. So by having such a progressive cabinet, that's how he sees his goal. And Mr. O'Toole did the right thing during the campaign of moving closer to the centre, moving closer to where more Canadians are. And I think he's getting some blowback in caucus because that move didn't win at the end of the day. They are not sitting in the government benches. They are still in the opposition. And he's fighting for his job right now. So I think him catering towards this um, more, I would say, regressive decision in terms of not supporting vaccine policies and catering to these groups is him trying to also hang on to his job a little bit just because he wants to make sure everyone in caucus feels heard and is happy there's a reason caucus went on for multiple hours yesterday because everyone was able to talk but i think when you are a leader you have to be a leader and you have to make tough decisions when they're not popular and it might be a tough decision within the conservative caucus but it's the right decision get vaccinated so are we losing the center on either side of the spectrum because it seems that doug ford has found it He has found it, weirdly enough, in Ontario. But when you look at the national level, you're getting pulled in about five different directions. You have the West, you have Quebec, you have even weird microcosms in Ontario, and you have Atlantic Canada, all looking for something a little bit different. So it's a little bit harder to try to stay in the centre and try to find that common ground. But I think we are seeing uh, Canadian politics slowly become more like American politics, and for the worst reasons, where the right and the left are just trying to pull away and there's no one really coming up the middle so mr dool tried to do that in the campaign but unfortunately he's getting pulled in another direction right now all right daniel perry with us consultant with summa strategies talking about all things political uh daniel thanks so much for the time be well thank you you as well catch up on the news and information you've missed this is hamilton today with scott thompson on 900 chml it's Hamilton today. We've still got another jam-packed hour to give you. Uh, and coming up, we're going to talk about Ontario uh, lifting more capacity limits for outdoor organized events. This is going to include things like Remembrance Day and skiing and such for the winter. Uh, kind of getting ahead of ourselves here. I don't mean to mention winter. But here's a report from uh, Erica Vella from Global on what today means. Effective immediately, events like parades or upcoming Remembrance Day memorials will go ahead with normal crowds. As we head into cooler months, the province has also announced that capacities on outdoor activities like skiing have also been removed. It's something that Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown has been calling for. You can have 20,000 people at a, indoors at a Maple Leafs game or a, a Raptors game. There's no reason we can't have these family-oriented civic events again. The lifting of capacity limits also applies to parades, and with the holiday season just around the corner, we've already seen many cities announcing annual Santa Claus parades will be virtual, including in Toronto. Erica Vella, Global News. You know, it's kind of disconcerting when politicians kind of go, well, I don't know why they're doing this, but they're not doing that. Whereas all they have to do is go read the information that they're getting from health officials and whatever, and it will be all explained. And, and many people wondered about this, and you've all got debates on it and what, you know, what should have been done. But many people complained that uh, stadiums opened up a week or two before uh, restaurants and such. And as, as the mayor of Brampton said, well, I don't know why they can sit in a room or in a stadium with 10,000, but they can't go to a parade. Well, in the stadium of 10,000, uh, everybody in there has been vaccinated. 
and as well, all the protocols that are in place with such large, organ, large organizations are way more extreme than you'll ever see at your local gathering. So that's the explanation behind it. Whether you buy it or not, that's up to you. But to, you know, for someone to stand up there and say, well, I don't know why, you know, at this time and day, I mean, I understand how the story evolves. We ask a question and then sooner or later we get an answer to it. But to sit there and say, well, I don't know why they did this, but they didn't do that. Well, because those big uh, Maple Leaf sports and entertainment events are incredibly well policed. The protocol is through the roof. That's how they make it happen. They're asking everyone who enters to get vaccinated. So, again, that's the reasoning for it. That's the reasoning that the health experts have said. So can we just go on and move on and try to get out of this dang thing? All right, uh, sort of without notice today, or maybe what it is, is that things are slowly getting back to normal that we haven't noticed how back to normal they've sort of got. (laughs) And when things open up, we just don't even notice anymore. Uh, because we're, you know, if you're vaccinated and you're fully vaccinated and you're doing your thing and, um, and thanks. And, uh, you know, you don't care about this stuff anymore. But on the Ontario government has lifted, uh, capacity limits for outdoor organized public events, including memorial services. This will be big for Remembrance Day, uh, parades, uh, holiday Christmas parades and such. Also includes things like skiing as we get into, uh, the winter and, and, uh, rural fairs and such that happen through the fall as well uh it looks like masks still be worn if you uh if of course you can't stay uh physically distanced but other than that uh again things slowly returning to normal let's bring in thomas Tenkate, professor with the school of occupational and public health ryerson university and with us now thomas thanks for the time i hope you're well yeah yes thanks scott thanks for having me back so uh your thoughts of where we are today and these latest uh this latest sets uh, set of announcements um I think a lot of people do oh yeah okay uh, we're not even aware of this today uh your thoughts on where we are in allowing these sorts of outdoor activities Yeah I well I think you know I, I go back to the numbers and sort of look at what what's the data saying and what's the trends showing and and you know for for quite a while now we've been in a quite a like a slow downward trend uh, and we've sort of been bouncing around a, around the 300 to 400 cases a day. Uh, like yesterday, we were up to 400. The day before, we were down at like 320 yeah. or so. So, so we're sort of bouncing around that. And so, so I think you know that's probably a number that the like overall we're we're probably going to be seeing for an extended period of time now. Uh, it's yeah, based on what what's the trend has been. And so, so my sense is that. You know, that's probably also a number that's manageable within the healthcare system. So, so given all of that, uh, and given the vaccination rates, uh, and you know, I think we're we're getting close to you know what we can do from a, a fully vaccinated rate. Uh, my sense is that you know, opening and you know, keeping to lift restrictions will will continue to happen. And uh, and so you know, now looking, you know, because I did the indoor ones. Uh, last week and then now we're you know it's really the you know what's the next cab off the rank and that sort of outdoor outdoor sort of uh, organized events uh, and so so it's not un, it's not unsurprising but uh, I think you know uh, people will uh, will sort of you know I think it, the events where kids are involved is probably the one that's probably more more of a uh, maybe a difficult choice for, for parents uh, right. because a lot of the kids under, you know, kids under 12 aren't able to be vaccinated yet. So I think that's potentially, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the decision point for, for, for some people uh, is, is probably around that. Uh, it's interesting as this was announced today, uh, some were saying that um, it brought them back to when stadiums and arenas were allowed to open there a, a week or two before, uh, restaurants and such were, and, and, and obviously, I mean, many people were scratching their heads and saying, well, what's with that? How does that work? And the answer we got from health officials, whether you agree with it or not, uh, is that, you know, you, you go into an event like a Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, there's a crew there that's totally dedicated to the protocol. They can afford to do that. And everybody's totally vaccinated and, you know, and the ventilation and all that sort of stuff is through the roof. Whereas when you're at a smaller event, you 
you can't, or a smaller restaurant or, or, or a capacity situation, uh, there isn't that same standard all the way across the board or the way of checking that standard. Um, is that, is that yesterday's conversation, Thomas? Um, yeah, I, like I think, you know, where, where we're at now is, you know, like, like I think, you know, one of the things that, that sort of the progressive rollout of, of lifting restrictions has meant that we've sort of had a, had a sense of, well, what happens when you do that? And so what we've noted, you know, what the trend has shown is that, that we haven't had an appreciable, you know, uh, increase in numbers because of these lifting of restrictions. And mm-hmm. so, so that sort of, gives the government more more confidence to say well yes let's keep lifting restrictions and then see what happens and so so i think you know we've we've got uh, you know a number of weeks under our belt now with uh, with the, the larger stadiums and uh, so i think you know in the next couple of weeks uh, you know it'll be uh, you know we'll be able to see what what the the implications of the the you know the suite of lifting restrictions has been so far because of the the time delay between uh, infection and and uh and development of of symptoms for anyone who 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 does become a case so so i think you know uh yeah the next couple of weeks are are important weeks to sort of see what happens with those numbers and i you know i think you know that what they've said is that uh depending on what the trend the trends in cases they they'll uh sort of either you know keep lifting restrictions or, or or uh or or rolling them rolling them back in but uh you know, I think one of the other things too is uh, sort of low. You know, we're talking also about Ontario wide, whereas I think you know the the issue, the other issue, what we've also had in the past is you know what's happening at a localized level and yeah. and sort of keeping track of that as well. And so so you might end up having you know different different levels of restriction in different localities based on you know the what's circulating in in that in those particular communities. Many talking about Halloween this weekend. We've only got about 30 seconds left. Any concerns there? What are your thoughts on uh, a typical Halloween here? Uh, I, I think it's going to be uh, more typical than, you know, than what we had last year. Uh, overall, like I'm, I'm going to let my kids go and do it. Uh, so overall, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably comfortable with it for, for this year. Thomas Tenkate, professor with the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Thomas, always thanks for the time. Be well. Uh, Thanks very much, Scott. Have a great day. All right, as you heard yesterday, uh, the Pope, Pope Francis, is set to visit Canada in an effort to work towards reconciliation with the Indigenous community. Now, what does the Pope need to say to make things right? Reed Lachlan is with us, Associate Professor of Christianity and Culture at the University of Toronto. Good afternoon, Reed. Hope you're doing well. Doing very well, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, obviously, lots of talk in regard to the Pope and a visit uh, to Canada, especially in regard to Indigenous issues. What have ha- what has the Vatican, what has the Pope agreed to at this point? Where are we in this discussion? Well, I mean, I don't think that the Pope has made a, a, a specific commitment. Um, he has committed to uh, visit Canada, and the purpose of that visit is to assist with the process of reconciliation uh, on behalf of, of the Catholic Church. So I think that everybody expects that that would include a um, an apology, which is what was called for by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, um, number 58 of their calls to action. Um, and I, I would be very surprised if that, if that worked, what was on the agenda primarily, but um, he hasn't made a specific commitment as far as I know. He's simply said that he's coming to assist with the process. So you don't anticipate any sort of apology whatsoever? Oh, no, I do. I do anticipate it. He just hasn't said it yet. So that's an interesting question, too, because I was wondering if, uh, in fact, Canadians would know the agenda or his position before all of this even happens. Uh, or will you know the, the date be announced, he arrives, and then we wait to see what he says. Will we know ahead of time uh, what his position is and, and what his intentions are? I mean, I doubt that we'll know exactly, but, but we will have information. So this is part of a longer conversation. So when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission final report was initially released in 2015, that call to action asked for the Pope to make an apology within one year on Canadian soil. Um, and there have been a couple rounds of this. So um, at first, the Vatican said that he had made a, a specific apology for the sins of colonialism when he was in Bolivia in also in 2015. And so... The first response was kind of like, well, we've, we've already apologized. Um, 
then a few years later, there were there were the prime minister extended an invitation, and and then the the, the pope said that he he didn't plan to come to Canada. That was around 2018, um, and I I think that that most people, most interpreters, including me, thought that he was basically waiting for a signal from the bishops of Canada um, that he wasn't going to come unless he was invited by them. And what has become clear is that that he has now been invited by them quite explicitly, and so he's he's he said yes. Um, there'll be there there there's some sort of preliminaries that are going to happen. So one of the things that has been scheduled is is in mid December there is a group of indigenous uh, survivors and leaders who will be meeting with the Pope in Rome. Uh, my guess is that is that that conversation will deeply inform what he decides to do when he comes. And so uh, my sense is that. Um, out of the conversations at that meeting, we're going to learn a lot more about about what he intends. And he's also going to be guided by the Canadian bishop. So I don't know that there's going to be a script uh, that's released ahead of time, but I do expect that as these conversations take place, that, that his agenda will become clear and we'll have a, a, a reasonably good sense of what to expect. You kind of answered my next question in the sense that uh, many were wondering why the Pope had not made more of an effort uh, prior to this. But as you mentioned, waiting for word from the Canadian bishops, why were the Canadian bishops so late in reacting to this, considering how Canadians are feeling? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I obviously don't know the minds of the bishops. The, the, the few bishops that I know are sincere good people, and so I, I want to ascribe good intentions to them. Um, I, I suspect that there are, there are several different issues at work. I mean, I, I think that, uh, that the Canadian bishops did respond in some specific ways. So, for example, one of the things that the TRC asked was to repudiate the doctrine of discovery, and, and they produced some documents that did repudiate and at least uh, made a gesture towards repudiating that doctrine. Um, uh, dioceses and religious organizations that actually ran residential schools have, in most in most or all cases, uh, issued formal apologies. And so I think part of it was because the church is decentralized, there was sort of a sense that the parties that were directly responsible were making apologies. Um, beyond that, I, I think that, that I would be speculating, but I, I think there's probably some... Um, Fear of legal exposure. I would be very surprised if that weren't one of their concerns. Um, the last time the Pope visited, it wasn't this Pope, it was Pope John Paul II, visited Canada. It's actually quite a large undertaking, and it's extremely costly in terms of both money and resources, right, just simply to host the Pope. And so it's, it's, a, it's a big project. It's something that's, that's not easy to, um, to arrange. And so I think there were various factors um, that probably, probably informed that decision and others that I don't know. They have become convinced that the the, the gravity of the situation is, is, is enough that, that any of those um, any of those sort of complications or commitments are and, and risks are obviously important to take, and so they should be invitation. Obviously, it's just speculation at this point. But what do you uh, any idea any thoughts as to what the Vatican, the Pope, are prepared to offer? I, I don't know. I mean, what I do know is that. Um, he did make this specific apology in 2015, July 9th it was, in Bolivia. Um, and so there is no reluctance to apologize uh, for, for the history of colonialism and settler colonialism. So I don't think there's any reluctance on his part to see that as, as a specific evil and wrong that needs to be apologized for. Um, also, the, the, the commissioners, when they um, issued the call to action, number 58, they made specific reference to an apology that had been issued by, by the previous pope, Pope Benedict XVI, in 2010 in Ireland um, for, uh, for children who had been abused by Catholic institutions. Uh, clearly, clearly what has been done to date is not even close to being enough. Do you think uh, apologizing for colonialism is enough, or what about apologizing for the behavior of the Catholic Church? Absolutely. No, no, and that's correct. I think, I think that's part of the... And, and he did talk about the Catholic Church as, as part of the colonial project, right? So he's he's not saying that's something that other people did. Um, but I, I do think that your general point is to say that I, I think that one of the reasons why that saying that, well, we've already apologized wasn't satisfactory was because it was an apology of a very general nature, whereas what's required here is a, is a very a, a, an apology for specific wrongs that were done by the Church on this soil, right? Over 60% of the residential schools were run by the Catholic Church. And so I, I do think that's what's different, and I, I expect him to be responsive to that. I don't, I don't know exactly what he'll do, but I, I, I would be very surprised if he weren't responsive to that 
specific call. Reed Lachlan with us, Associate Professor of Christianity and Culture at the University of Toronto. Reed, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, it's interesting. I, I found that conversation fascinating in the sense that, well, I already apologized. I already apologized. I already apologized. It, well, at the end of the day, shouldn't it be the person you're apologizing or the people you're apologizing to to determine whether that is adequate enough? Because despite what was just said, clearly, it is not enough. If you're all about drama and gossip, well, this isn't for you. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Scott Radley with us. Uh, coming up next, right after the news, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and he's here. Scott Radley, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Always, Scott. How are you? I'm doing good. i got to start with the story of Kyle Beach and uh, the situation with the Chicago Blackhawks and such. The poll question of the day is, will this change the culture? Uh, you've been in this business a long time. You've seen this before. What are your thoughts on this? See, uh, well, look, um, a couple things. You hope that when these things happen again in the future that lessons are learned and things are done better. That's, that's what the minimum I think we can hope is that people learn from things that have happened. Um, I don't know that this is a hockey culture story. I mean, it's a hockey story, and it involves the Chicago Blackhawks, but I, I think this story probably has occurred in every sport, in every uh, hobby, in every field, in every business, in every... I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a social story. It happens to be placed in a hockey context. And it's really a story about power and abuse and someone holding or having something that you want and, and using that power over you. Well, there's two parts to it. Yes, you're absolutely right about that. And the other part is sort of having blinders on because the other part of the story is the people in the, in the organization who heard something according to this report yeah. and didn't do anything because they had, they had just qualified to be in the Stanley Cup finals and they've been the first time in, you know, since 1961 or 62 or something. And, you know, they're saying, look, we, we got to win the Stanley Cup. We're here. And we don't have time to deal with this right now. At least that was the comment from apparently from one or two. So, you know, the blinders becomes the part about, you know, could could you not see this happening in almost any other context with people who are focused on something and say, I don't have time to deal with this. And, you know, hopefully this yeah. doesn't just... It happens all the time. Well, and hopefully this doesn't just get painted as a hockey story because yeah, I guarantee you that same thing is going to be said all over the place in every other context. Hopefully it's learned by everybody so it's not done again. Yeah, so maybe the question shouldn't be asked, is the hockey, is the hockey culture going to change? Is culture period going to change? Yeah, that's what I would say. And that's not letting hockey off the hook. But, but nope. again, I, I don't think this is unique. I would agree with that. I would agree with that 100%. Uh, let's talk about Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg uh, oh. quickly turning out to be public enemy number one. Uh, we've talked with business profs about this. It appears what he's doing is relaunching something new uh, because all of these other companies fall under the Facebook umbrella. He'll then pull all those companies over to this new umbrella, Meta or whatever it is, Meta, and then uh, and create something better, shiny, flashier, and then eventually Facebook dies on the vine and all of the other profits, the profitable companies have been moved over uh, are people going to fall for this are people to expect that this new world that he's creating is going to be any more secure or any more less abusive than facebook first of all he is only public well he's public enemy number one to a few people but particularly to barbers and hairdressers around the world well, how can a guy who has <laughs> hundreds of billions of dollars have that haircut him and the guy who's the owner said. of the los angeles raiders davis it's like you got to be kidding yes. me. anyway Back to the more pressing issue, um, I, I am sure that P.T. Barnum is still right, and I am sure there is and are still suckers born every minute, and I'm sure some people will quickly just say, hey, this is great, look at all these new plans. But I also think, Scott, that I, I, I trust that not everybody is a victim of P.T. Barnum's philosophy, and I, I hope that there are some people who can look at this and say, you know, this is this is a nice, hey, look at the bright, shiny object over here, but don't pay attention to all the stuff that's been in public for the last few months, and that some of these issues can still be dealt with. But uh, uh, you know what? There are, there are of course, gullible people and dis, you know, easily distracted people in the world. We all know that, and that's not insulting anyone in particular. But I, I, I think people are, I think a lot of people are more savvy than that and aren't going to be 
thrown off the scent by a you know Mark Zuckerberg video with him waving his arms around and flashing a new uh, moving logo. I, I I saw the thing today and it's like, all right, all right. So this is now. So this is what you're going to go to the Congress or the Senate or the hearings or whatever else, and you're just going to show this video and everyone's going to go, oh, cool, okay, everyone go home. I I don't see that. Here's the- Here's the other thing, and we know how much technology change changes and what was hip one day is not the next. Why are we or anybody, to Zuckerberg himself, why is he so bold to assume that it's going to be him that comes up with whatever replaces what we have or becomes the new metaverse or universe or anything? Because there's a lot of people, bright people, younger than him, waiting in the wings to create the next big thing. So well, why are we to assume that, well, because he created the last one, we just got to wait to see what he does next? Uh, because so far, what's the evidence that he's not? I mean, Facebook, it's not as cool with kids as it was, but it's still being used by something like two or three billion people around the world. Um, I, I agree with your point. But if you're Mark Zuckerberg, you know, people can tell you all the time that you're not necessarily going to be the one driving the future. But until someone comes along and topples your empire, why would you not believe that? I mean, even Twitter hasn't knocked him off. It's, it's TikTok hasn't knocked him off. Instagram, he bought Instagram. It hasn't knocked him off. Well, that's the whole point. It, 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 anything that knocks him off, he just buys. So, well, I mean, that's not really beating. That's buying. Eventually, there's going to be some, like, hill, some mountain, and there's going to be three giant castles on the top. One is going to be owned by Jeff Bezos, one is Elon Musk, and one is Mark Zuckerberg, and they'll just be the owners of everything, and we will just, you know, come and bring our alms to them, and, uh, you know, that'll be the end of it. Scott Radley with his host of the Scott Radley Show. You can hear him after the news tonight and columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is a wrap for ours. Thanks for listening. Much appreciated. Thanks to Will and Ted and Lisa and Diana for participating today. Much appreciated. And as always on Hamilton Today, we leave it to you, the good CHML listener, to have the last word. If Facebook Inc. is changing its name, is that basically like going into witness protection?